Our scripture uh, for today uh, comes from Romans 5, verses 1 to 11, and it's found on page 1752 in your few Bibles. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man one might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, as we saw last week, the Christian people who were receiving this letter were on the receiving end of some serious persecutions. We talked about how the Jews were expelled from Rome because they were preaching the gospel only about 20 years after Jesus was risen from the dead. We also know that the Gentile Christians in Rome didn't have it so good either. About five years after this letter was written, there was a huge fire in the city of Rome that started at some merchant shops. The fire burned for 10 entire days, and it destroyed two-thirds of the city. It looked like the gods were angry with Rome, so the Romans looked for someone to blame. They found that their city, in their city there was a growing movement of people who decided to abandon the old Roman gods and instead worship the god of the Jews, the Christians. Yeah, that sounded like the kind of thing that would make the Roman gods angry. So the emperor at that time, Nero, decided to blame the Christians for the fire. The logic was that the Christians were weird and strange, and the fire started in merchant shops, which were the kind of places that Christians worked. So it was possible that the Christians started the fire themselves because they hated Rome or something. Propaganda is propaganda. But even the, if the Christians didn't start the fire themselves, the Romans thought, they were still responsible for it because they angered the gods by refusing to worship them. Whatever happened, they thought the Christians were to blame. And so they executed a lot of them and burned them on stakes. This was part of a larger trend and one of the main reasons that the Christians were persecuted in Rome and in pretty much every other place in the ancient world too. People believed that the gods controlled everything. And so the only thing stopping bad stuff from happening was that the gods were happy. It was a civic duty of everyone to worship the gods because it contributed to keeping the society running. People refusing to worship the gods were not only refusing to do their civic duty, but they were actively angering the gods. 
So you can bet that whenever something bad happened, it was because the gods were angry. And if the gods were angry, it was because we weren't worshiping them hard enough. And if we weren't worshiping them hard enough, it was because the Christians weren't worshiping the gods. So the Christians were very easily blamed when anything went wrong. The Romans were okay with tolerating the Jews who only worshiped their one God because the Jews promised that they weren't going to try to get other people to abandon the Roman gods. Basically, the Romans made a deal that said if the Jews prayed for the emperor and so got the help of the God of the Jews, they were fulfilling their civic duty to get the favor of the gods. The Romans figured it didn't hurt to have one more God on their side. But if the Jews started preaching to other people to stop worshiping the Roman gods, then the Roman gods might not be happy because they wouldn't receive worship. You throw in that the Christians refused to go to the circuses and the gladiatorial games because they thought they were wrong, and it made it look like they were completely un upending society. So that's why Roman historian Tacitus accused Christians of hatred of mankind, because they were removing themselves from some of the most important parts of Roman society. There were a few people who called themselves atheists because they refused to worship the gods because they didn't think they were real. They were per persecuted pretty harshly for not fulfilling their civic duty. Romans called Christians atheists, not because they didn't believe that the gods existed, but because they didn't worship all the gods like they were supposed to. So really, what made everyone mad about the Christians wasn't that they worshiped God. What made them mad is that they worship, didn't worship all the other gods and they encouraged people to abandon their gods. That meant that when Roman governors wanted to root out Christianity, they really were only interested in the kinds of Christians that didn't worship other gods. So what they would do when they heard there was a Christian somewhere is they would tell them to worship the emperor or to worship Jupiter. If the Christian did that, everything was good. It was fine that he worshiped Christ as long as he also worshiped all the other gods. In other words, all the persecution would go away if the Christians just decided to compromise a little bit and also worship the Roman gods. And you or I might look at that whole arrangement and think, huh, why not just worship those gods? What's the big deal? But the Christians realized that it really was a big deal. For them, humans were made in the image of God, and that means that they have incredible dignity. Humans are super important and they're deserving of love and honor and respect. Idolatry completely upends this idea. Humans were made to worship God as the pinnacle of all of creation. They were the last thing created in Genesis, the cherry on top that was the most glorious of all of God's creatures. What idolatry did was it encouraged people to, to debase themselves and to worship things that were way lower than them. It completely messed up human dignity and should have been humiliating and ridiculous. If you were worshiping a statue made of metal, that meant that a human being, the pinnacle of all of creation and the most glorious of God's creatures, was prostrating himself to a hunk of metal. That's why the New Testament is constantly talking about idolatry as slavery. It's making someone who has no rightful power over you and has no good qualities at all into your master. It was out of love of mankind and respect for its dignity and worth worthiness and not hatred that the Christians refused to worship idols. Idolatry also meant betraying Jesus. In Christ, God came to the world and died for us to set us free from slavery to idols. All that was necessary was being loyal to God, which really wasn't a whole lot to ask. To go back and worship idols meant betraying that loyalty 
and dishonoring the one who died for you. In fact, we might face a lot of the same challenges in our lives today sometimes. We might be asked to compromise our faith just a little bit and think everything's going to be fine. Maybe in the workplace we're asked to do something, to do something that goes against our faith. Or at school we're meant to write an essay which says something we don't actually believe. Or you feel tempted to do something so you don't rock the boat with your friends. It's easy to think, yeah, I'll just compromise a little bit here. But that really reveals who we are. When push comes to shove, it shows that we're really loyal to our job or our bank account or just not rocking the boat and not to Jesus. And taking that one compromise most often just leads to another and another. But we can choose to be something different. We can choose to be faithful to Jesus, and that will only make it easier to be faithful in the future when things get even tougher. Because as humans, there's nothing in all of creation that it is proper to worship but God himself. It is a violation of our dignity to do otherwise. You are so much better than plastic. You are so much better than Jupiter or Venus or Marduk or paper money or your career or anything else in all creation except for God himself. How could you worship that trash? All this to say that a lot of what's going on in the background of this passage in Romans has to do with this persecution. And the persecution is happening because the Roman Christians are refusing to worship idols. Now let's imagine what's going through the heads of these Gentile Christians. They're used to the idea that if bad stuff is happening, that's because the gods are angry. Once they became Christians, they probably still had those same ideas in their mind. They thought if bad stuff is happening, then God was angry with them. And we get some of that same idea in our heads too sometimes. We think that how we know God is happy with us is if we are happy. We think that suffering has no real value to it, and it's just something you're supposed to get through. Worse, it means that God isn't happy with you. What Paul is trying to say is that actually the opposite is often true. He says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, we're really not sure whether we are justified by faith, so here's a bunch of tests you can run to see if God is happy with us and if we have peace with God. That's actually the way that pagans did things, because they never really were sure whether they were at peace with the gods. In Mesopotamia, they had these massive tomes called Omen Compendia. They were huge. And they, they would do stuff like slaughtering sheep and looking at its liver to figure out whether the, the way the liver looks tells them whether the gods are happy or angry. The gods were completely irrational, and they do basically whatever they wanted at any moment without any regard for loyalty. You couldn't predict what they did. But Paul says that this god is different. We are the ones who are disloyal, sinning against God and profaning his name all over the place. But even when we were doing that, God was so loyal to us that he suffered for us and died for us so that we could be saved from what's destroying us. We can know that we're at peace with God because God has paid the ultimate price to make sure that we have peace with him. He's not about ready to give that up just because we committed some little sin. But it's natural for us to think in the way that pagans thought. It's natural for us to think that one day God loves us and the next day God hates us. It's true for me too. One day I can think I'm doing really well as a Christian, that God is happy with me and I'm being blessed and the next day I'm doing terrible and that God has abandoned me. But Paul says, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God, period. As Christians, we have to remind ourselves over and over that whatever it is that we feel, 
God loves us and he gave himself for us and nothing's going to change that. So these Gentile Christians would have probably thought that when persecution came and they were suffering, that God must be angry with them. And what Paul says in response might just be one of the craziest and most revolutionary things in the history of religion. It happens to be true. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Think about what Paul is actually saying there. We rejoice in our sufferings. We are happy to be suffering for Christ. When the Romans come and they persecute us and try to keep us from following Christ, it actually makes us stronger. It builds our character. They think that persecution makes us think that God has abandoned us, but instead it makes us think that God is with us. Because our God suffered for us, and when we suffer, we suffer with him. Not only that, but this suffering is making me into the person I was always meant to be. And so Christianity thrived through persecution, and the more it it was persecuted, for some reason, it seemed to thrive all the more. I wonder how often we have that same attitude when we're suffering. I can tell you I really don't most of the time. I don't normally have big problems in my life and look at them at the time and think, this is an opportunity. But Paul did, and he encourages us to do that too. But sometimes you look back on the tough stuff in your life and realize how much it shaped you for the better and made you trust God more. So often, suffering comes when something that we thought was really important, something we didn't think we could live without, gets stripped from us. And then all of a sudden, we realize that we don't have nearly as much as we, we don't need that stuff nearly as much as we thought we did. When that happens, you lean on God all the more to make up the difference. In the one hymn, All I Have is Christ, you've seen it, and at one time you might have thought, yeah, all I have is Christ, but I also have all this other stuff, which is really cool. But then that other stuff gets taken away, and all you really have is Christ. But that was always true. All the other stuff was never nearly as necessary as Christ himself. When that happens, Paul says, you're left with hope. And that hope is that God will come and comfort you one day. If not now, then when he comes again to set the world right and save it from its pain. You look at life the way it is now and you realize it's not the way it's supposed to be and nothing you do will ever make it the way it's supposed to be. And at that point, you're seeing the world exactly as it is. As a place which is entirely dependent on God to survive and entirely dependent on God to go back to the way it was supposed to be. Hope is like a muscle that grows weak when it isn't practiced. And so often it's not practiced because we think we don't need it, that our lives are pretty sweet as is, and so we're all too satisfied with tiny little worldly things instead of God's love breaking into the world and setting everything right. And that's what Lent's all about. It's about stripping away all that other stuff and seeing yourself as the way you are. It's about recognizing that you're not the way you're supposed to be, and you're totally dependent on God to make it better. In The Matrix, it's about taking the red pill and seeing yourself the way you are, and not the way you've managed to convince yourself that you are. But why is all this worth it? Why not just go back and worship all the other gods instead of being persecuted? On our terms, why not just do what the rest of the world does? Why not fight tooth and nail for advancement, or stay on the couch and do whatever's easiest? 
What was radical about Christianity, which we so often take for granted, is that it had a God that actually cared about us. The other gods in the ancient world pretty much used people as slaves, saying that if people served the gods and fed them and clothed them and worshipped them, the gods wouldn't destroy them. But Christianity said that God actually cares about us more than we could ever care about him. The same thing is still true for us. Your job probably doesn't care about you a whole lot, except for how much you can help them. Your couch doesn't care about you a whole lot. Your TV shows and your phone don't really care about you. They just want you to get addicted to drive up ratings. Even a lot of friends don't really care about you nearly as much as you might think they do, as terrible as that is to realize. As we talked about at the retreat, a lot of you have experienced God's love through the church, and that's how you know that God loves you. When things got tough, the church stuck with you. In short, it's all worth it because of God's love. It's the love of God and the love of the church and the love of each other. Because we're in a family, and we'd never betray each other just to make things easier for ourselves. And that love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So that whenever we experience love and family with other Christians, we're experiencing the love and family of God. But how do we know all this is true? How do we know that God cares about us and cares about our sufferings? How did he actually pour the love of God into our hearts? Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that our suffering is worth it? Because Christ's suffering was worth it when he was raised from the dead to free us from sin and death. How do we know that God cares for us? Because he suffered and died for us, even when we had nothing to offer him. Even if your best friends, even if they love you so much that they die for you, get plenty out of you in return. But God shows his love by suffering and dying for us, even when we, everything we did was specifically calculated to cause him suffering. How do we know that God actually takes suffering seriously? Because he suffered immense pain and torture, and even hell himself, so that he actually knows how it feels. What other god could say that? In the end, though, this all feels hypothetical if we don't experience it ourselves. And we can experience it through prayer and through communion and through Bible study. We can actually experience God's love through these things. And we do. There's one other way that's often overlooked, but I think it's where Drainsville has its greatest strength. We can experience God's love through each other. Because wherever we gather, God is there with us. And if God has transformed our, the hearts of our fellow members, then the love we share with each other is really the love of God. And that's not in a hypothetical sense, but in a real one. So if you're suffering, let me or the deacons know, and we'll be there for you. If you're not, seek others out to show them that you're here for them. Because that's how we'll show God's love to each other. Let's pray. God, you showed us what love looks like on the cross. Help us in our suffering to recognize that you're the only one that cares for us and transform our hearts so that we would be ready to show your love to each other. Amen. <laughs>